<laughs> there it is. The macro edition of Fred and Alex. Macro. This some this is giving me some good luck. Dude, I like this beats. Yeah. Smooth. I'm both edition. beats and rock. Both beats and rock, so not for it. Okay. I mean you are what you are. But <laughs> you know what? You know what? That kicks us off. It does. Into what we're gonna do today. So welcome to Freightonomics. The show where we combine freight and economics, and hopefully we do a good job of making it relatable. Now today, seeing as we are in a totally different world than what we were in before, I think both of you will agree, uh, we're going to kick off and just throw the old format out the door for a little bit. And I welcome Andrew Cox here. Thanks uh, for having me. Part of our research team uh, who wrote a wonderful piece uh, over the weekend for our Sonar subscribers, uh, basically walking you through how quickly we could possibly get to a 20% unemployment rate, how that's possible, what that means overall. I think it was a pretty good job. Anthony disagrees, uh, but you know what? We're going to find out why here in a minute. I thought... First and foremost, <laughs> I am a huge fan of Andrew Cox, <laughs> Mr. Strickland, trying to get things going already. Um, I enjoyed Andrew's piece. I thought it was very informative. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, this is a show. We can't be so agreeable all the time. That's one of the great things about Freight Waves. We all do analysis. We all attack it from different perspectives. And we're not just a bunch of yes men that just say, oh, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. We all come with different perspectives. And our points are battle tested. And you're always going to get something that has been poked at a little bit. So. And, and well said, Anthony. Uh, so, yes, today's show is going to be a little bit different. We are going to open it up for debate. And, and the purpose of this is not necessarily to disagree with each other or create contention or anything like that, but yeah, to right. explore different uh, paths or possibilities of what we're experiencing right now. I think everybody in the country right now is a little bit on edge, um, you know, not sure of what's about to happen in the United States. We've got the Dow Jones going up 8%, down 20%, up another 10%, a lot of confusion right now. But I think there's value in this exercise that we're about to, to jump in on and, you know, debate. It doesn't mean that I dislike Andrew by any means. It definitely means I dislike Anthony. Uh, that's a fact. You know, that's a well fact. fact. He doesn't like cheese, therefore we can't be friends. Uh. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there, there's value in the fact that we can sit here and we can argue different topics and really dig deep on, you know, what do we need to do? This is how you gain understanding is by kind of seeing the different routes of possibility and then figuring out what's wrong with it, what's right with it. And that way we become smarter and more educated and hopefully come to the right conclusions. So Andrew Cox, welcome. Thank Thanks, you for sir. joining the show. You are doing double duty today, good sir. He's normally a member of the Great Quarter Guys, which hopefully everybody is tuning into every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Uh, on our Freightways Live channel, but also available, of course, on our Freightcasts. And, and all of that. So, Andrew, welcome. Thank you for showing up today. Uh, thank you, Zach. I think you made a good point about the, the uncertainty and how much we don't know. So I yeah. want to go ahead and throw that out there and forewarn everyone that my estimates could be wildly off. I do believe that Goldman Sachs and, and Morgan Stanley and all these other estimates are probably wildly off because... Let, let's let's put it down, boil it down to what these are. These are estimates in a time of the greatest uncertainty we've ever seen, probably in modern history. So take everything, uh, every estimate that you read with, with a grain of salt. That's my, my forewarning. Yeah, no, that's well said. So the, uh, you know, while we're still in agreement and still friends, uh, I'll go ahead and back you up. But so today we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to act as sort of a pseudo moderator. I'm, of course, going to have to interject at times. 
but anybody that's involved in those debate shows on ESPN, of course, we don't have our sports right now, tier, uh, and for lack of other things to watch on TV right now, I'm going to basically pose questions to our panel here, Andrew and Anthony, and I'm going to let you guys give your personal opinions on this. Now, again, I want to state that these are personal opinions, and you can say them. I want you to be as honest as you possibly can. Uh, you are obviously on public in the public sentiment, so make sure that you are covered there. But at the same time, let's just keep it. You know, I want the gloves off. I want things to get real. <laughs> All right. Well, let's keep the gloves on for Anthony and the gloves off for me. I think that'd make it a little bit more of a favorite fight. But either way, he's got double the weight on me. So he's also we'll... got sick abs. So <laughs> those just you, came in you from win. Amazon. You wouldn't win that anyway. <laughs> All right. So Zach, also. You, like you said, you're you're moderating, pseudo moderating. You're jumping in here as well. Pseudo moderating. Yeah. So I get to, I get to if I want to have the last word, I'm going to take it. All right, because right. it's called absolute power, and I'm going to relish <laughs> it. All right, let's kick let's kick this thing off. All right, guys. So yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna basically point to one of you to kick things off. I'll hopefully I'm gonna alternate between the two of you. Okay. I got to look both directions. My eyes don't go that way. But I'll I'll point to one of you. I'll say Anthony. Let's start off with you, or Andrew. Let's go to you. And then we'll kick it off with uh, the first question. Y'all ready? Sounds good. Absolutely. All right. We're all friends. Friends. Um, the president basically reportedly wanting the U.S. back open for business by Easter. Is this a reasonable expectation? Andrew Cox, you lead it off. You're the guest. <laughs> Absolutely not. This is just the wildest thing. We, we, we haven't even gotten anywhere near flattening the curve when it comes to uh, amount of reported cases or uh, amount of deaths in the U.S. You know, I saw, you know, everybody was seeing these, um, these linear scales from the, the report of the first death or the report of the 10th death, where we are now. Currently, New York is, is the worst of it, uh, is the hotspot for the U.S. We've seen the, the trajectory right now is that, you, that New York itself could be worse than both Wuhan and Lombardi. So, no, that's the absolute wrong move to be making. We haven't gotten anywhere near flattening the curve, and we're now encouraging people to maybe going back to work in two weeks. I think it's a, an absolute terrible move, uh, and I don't think it will happen. I think even the American people, if they get that encouragement, that advice from, their, uh, from, from the administration, I think that they're going to ignore it. And I think a lot of companies will continue to work from home or, or stay shut altogether. All right. Well said. All right, Anthony. What do you think? Well, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> so, I mean, in honor of the show, I'm going to have to take the other side or I'm going to attempt to take the other side. Go for it. Not because I want to. You don't have to disagree. No, if you don't I'm want disagreeing to. now to just out of sake of disagreeing here. All right. Just to play devil's advocate, just to keep things interesting. Keep in mind, I can still chime in if you two want to agree. No one cares about your opinion, Zach. Well, see, <laughs> we're not here for that. All right, this is, so this is what this is why it's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, one of the things that Andrew pointed out, which is true, is that we haven't seen the worst of it yet, and so there's still plenty of cases. New York City, one of the worst hit areas in the country, and there's talks of it might being the new epicenter of sorts, and so we still don't know how impactful this thing is because tests still haven't been put out and there are many areas even if the economy comes back online certain people go back to work there might not be any demand for those goods but not all regions are being hit as equally and so zach i can still we're in chattanooga right now right i can still walk around all willy-nilly i know there are some bars that were open as of yesterday this is not the case in harder hit metropolitan areas. And so some metros are going to be hit harder than others. That means that some areas and some regions in the country are going to be able to facilitate people returning to work and resume life as normal 
rather than others that are still in high lockdown situations. Hmm. All right. Well, that's well said. So I think, I think both of you made good points, but I think it's also worth the discussion in terms of, you know, uh, have, have we made a notable impact? We don't have any data on that yet. Uh, it, it's still way too early to know that the social distancing policy is even having a remote impact into what the number of new cases are happening. Uh, you know, the freight volumes, of course, are going through the roof. This is due to panic buying, uh, a lot of stores restocking their shelves as people are really kind of hoarding in. Now, my, my whole problem with what's going on, and I think people are starting to recognize this, is that there is a real possibility that here in the next couple of weeks to a month, uh, that the unemployment levels get beyond control. And if we are telling people to actively shut down without some form of backdrop behind that, uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that we disagree with the, you know, the idea of keeping everybody distant from each other uh, as this virus spreads throughout the country. We, need, we definitely need to do that. But if we continue to basically force people to not have a choice whether or not to work or not, uh, and, we, and we say that you cannot go outside, you can't go do the normal things you can do. You have to stay at home. You can't go to Lowe's. You can't go to Home Depot, et cetera. You're basically removing their sense, their, their basic ability to go and provide for their families, for themselves. Eventually, not everybody has weeks or months of money stored up in their bank accounts. So eventually these people are going to be like, well, I can't get money. I can't have a job. And of course, there's a stimulus on the, on the table that may do something to do that. We'll debate that here in a minute. But I, I, I don't think it's reasonable to think that we can simply say, everybody just stay home for the next two months and it'd be okay. Eventually, you know, especially these people in New York, as Andrew pointed out, probably the hardest hit area in the whole United States, which actually is fact, that is the hardest hit area in the whole United States. This is an area that is designed for people to be able to quickly go out and retrieve the goods and services they need on demand. So they have small 300 square foot flats and small apartments that they have, you know, available to them, but they, they can't simply just sustain themselves. Of course, it's very expensive to live up there, cost of living, et cetera. And then there's this whole slew of people that live paycheck to paycheck. I myself was one of those way back in the day. Uh, when I was in my 20s, they, they're, they're out of money right now. What happens when everybody's out of money? They're not going to just sit at home not trying to eat. So there is something to be said for. We do, nef we do definitely need to consider the fact that there needs to be more than just stay at home, correct? So what, is you, what, what are you alluding to? That yeah. You're alluding to the, the fact that we might have some sort of anarchy on our hands, that people are not just going to stay at home and, and not uh, provide for themselves. Do you think we may have some sort of looting situation going on? There, there'll definitely be looting. I mean, that's, that's I think it's already happening. I've, that, I've read some reports that some very nonviolent looting is happening on the West Coast. Yeah, that's already going to happen. So I, I, think, I think there is, you know, definitely something to be said that I think we definitely need to question the fact that we cannot, the solution is not simply everybody just stay at home. Uh, that's, that's not a long-term solution. Our country is designed for people across the country to be able to get out, go do things freely. A lot of these other countries, such as China, uh, they already have some form of social support in place. So it's a little bit easier for them to manage their population in that scenario versus an American scenario where we're all free to go and do, and we're accustomed to being free and going and doing what we need to. So I, I don't have a good solution for you. I just wanted to throw that out there that it's not simply good enough to say everybody stay at home for two months. 
So I guess I need a little bit of uh, clarity here. We're, we're saying that we can't keep everyone home without a, stim- a fiscal stimulus, or we, can, we can't keep people, everyone home with or without a fiscal stimulus? There needs to be something that plugs the gap. If we're going to hit pause, we need to say, here's your money for the next month to hit pause for. Right. Otherwise, it's, it's not fair. It's not going to work. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. Uh, I, I, are, you, are we in any disagreement here that fiscal stimulus is, mm. is needed? I would say only thing I would fine-tune is like maybe not for the month, but maybe for the week. <laughs> because I'd, I wouldn't trust some individuals, and I know their financial planning, to logically spend that month's worth of stimulus in the most efficient way. So I think if you're rolling it out in a weekly basis, trickling it in, and so week by week, you're still getting these benefits, I think that would also be um, advantageous for individuals. Because I can see, I know when I was, once upon a time, a college student, and we got our monthly stipends for be living off campus as a student athlete. The beginning of the month, you always felt amazing. You blew through that check, you paid rent, and everything else was just eating out, buying clothes. And the next thing you know, that last like two, two and a half weeks was rough. So just talking from my own personal experience, of course. But I think if we're getting these checks on a week-to-week basis, I think for the greater population that are even used to getting paid on a weekly basis, you're thinking service-facing industries, people who are waitressing, hosting, uh, maybe they're driving or something like that, and they're already used to a weekly implementation on their paychecks and ready to get that money because they need it on a weekly basis, uh, warehouse working. Um, those a lot of industries that they're getting paid on a weekly basis. So I think that would be the only thing I would change is the cadence of those release packages. All right. So you bring up a good point, and I'm going to kind of change the direction a little bit here for a second. So basically you're saying that we need to target the stimulus a little bit more effectively. Very much so. So the restaurants, the service industry side is obviously going to be a lot more exposed. I think, Andrew, you pointed it out really well in your article this week uh, about the 20% unemployment rate. Where, where was the majority of the unemployment going to come from? Yeah, I mean, we just look at what the lockdowns and these quarantines really affect. And the first, the easiest two off of my plate are the things that I spend the most money on, which is retail goods and, uh, and food, uh, food, eating out, drinks and such. So you have 15 million people that work retail and, and roughly 12 million that work uh, in, in food servicing. So you're looking at almost 30 million Americans right there in those two industries that are almost nationwide shut down. Anthony mentioned earlier that he said that some bars were open in Chattanooga. I wish I knew which ones they were because I haven't heard, I haven't seen a single one. I know we've got city ordered that they need to be shut down as of last week. So I, I just, I don't think like these people are already out of work, whether they've been furloughed and their, their employer has told them to file for unemployment, which I know of a, a major, um, a major Chattanooga uh, um, restaurant owner, restaurateur has told their people that they're furloughed for the next eight weeks, but they should go ahead and apply for unemployment. So like those people, they think they have a job waiting for them in eight weeks, but we could be in the same situation where we are right now uh, in eight weeks. So they may not have a job then. Uh, I, Yes, this 30, 30 million people nearly just, just in that. And that is the industry that will be hit the hardest. And then we think about other industries that fill that industry. So we're thinking about transportation, brokerages. I mean, there's just the list goes on and on. There's not one industry except for what we spoke of, maybe Clorox workers or, or people <laughs> that are making hand sanitizer that won't be affected by this, uh, by this slowdown. And, he, and even with Clorox, eventually, it's a short-term thing, right? eventually it's going to run out. Eventually, everybody will have enough or they won't feel that, it's useful. Yeah, like, all that Zoom stock that everybody's buying right now, what if there's only, you know, there's 80% of the volume that you had before? Does that, does that help you? Does that hurt you? Actually, it hurts everybody. Yep. So, uh, yeah, I think that's well said. So, all of that being said, is, 
shelter at home the right way to go for this scenario? I'm starting. I'm going to go with Anthony because okay. you started. <laughs> um, I would say shelter at home is uh, because we have to limit exposure, right? And so we're looking at that um, limiting our exposure to other people, especially limiting our exposure to those that might be elderly or have some kind of immune deficiency or maybe infants that might be vulnerable to um, catching this coronavirus. And so when we're thinking about those who might be vulnerable, I think it's not necessarily for me, but for them, because of course I'm just as susceptible as uh, contracting uh, the coronavirus, but maybe my uh, recovery is gonna be a, little, a, a lot easier, I think, than some in the aging population or so, or some of those that might have um, some uh, health risk already. So I think, um, Sheltering at home for those that are able to do it um, is definitely key at this point. So basically you're saying uh, those that are higher risk, it's the best solution for them. So anybody over 65, et cetera, immunodeficiency, that's the best solution, but not necessarily for people like 20 to 35? No, I think um, people 20 to 35, I think they are doing it on behalf of those individuals. And so, um, I mean, we could quarantine all the, <laughs> all the senior citizens and individuals that might have um, immunity uh, deficiencies, but I'm not sure if that would be the alternate solution. Um, but I do think if, if we're restricting our uh, distance, uh, restricting our distance and exposure to those individuals that are very, I guess, uh, not well prepared to defend or fend off this virus, um, that's key. Okay. Andrew? I just, it blows my mind that, that we're even having this discussion because mm. we have a control. We, ha we have what it looks like if you don't do lockdowns and quarantine, and that is Italy. And they're by far the worst hit region right now. They're even worse than what China was a month and a half ago. And then we have what it looks like if you do take extreme, almost draconian measures to lock down and quarantine people, and that's in South Korea and in Singapore, and where they've really they've just done an incredible job. I think Singapore's had like almost single-digit deaths, less than, less than 25 deaths, uh, and they've had numerous cases, but they've done a good job of track and trace and locking things down. And I think it's not only locking things down, which is not this, the next point isn't exactly what we're talking about, but it's about the testing and the tracking and tracing of where people have been. That, that is a big point, but I'm sure we'll save that for later on the discussion. I think absolutely shelter at home is by far the best measure we have to, to hold this thing in place and to, to stop it from spreading. All right, Andrew, I'm going to challenge you here for a second. Yeah. So you just said Singapore, uh, you know, and South Korea. These are tiny geographic footprints Correct. with concentrated populations. Again, mm -hmm. both a challenge and kind of a, a benefit or an advantage of controlling this, this disease. So tell me, does this make a difference in your mind? Because they are able to, Singapore obviously already has some level of social control above and beyond that of the United States, sure. but they also have a smaller geographic region. Can that still be applicable to the United States effect, as effectively as they can? I don't know about the level of, effect, of efficacy, but I do know that there are areas of the U.S. where the majority of the population lives where it's still highly dense. I mean, look at New York, for example, or Philadelphia or Washington or any of the cities in the, in the, in the Northeast or on the West Coast. These are still highly dense areas. Mm -hmm. Like, let's not, let's not act that, yes, we are, uh, what is it, five or six times bigger than South Korea, but we still have very dense areas where this thing is having a massive outbreak, where we just now implemented shelter-at-home uh, shelter procedures. If we would have implemented these weeks ago, I, I would guarantee that we'd have a, a different 
uh, outlook on where this is right now, whether from uh, whether you're looking at deaths or cases. I just think yes, I think that, that we can take their small sample and extrapolate it to a, to a bigger population because we still have highly dense areas. And even if it's not dense, that that should help us even more. If we did the shelter at home in a less dense area, I feel like we should have uh, an even better. Um, a, a, a better equation or a better result than what they had in a highly dense, uh, small geographical area. All right. I think also kind of piggybacking off of one of the things I think was really impactful that Andrew said was the testing and tracking. So there are still tons of everyday Americans that are have yet to be tested that want to be tested. And so I think what we're seeing right now is that we're being exposed of our lack of preparedness. Um, I think the economy of scales would work out in comparison to something like South Korea um, or Singapore. It's just that we were poorly prepped for this situation. And so when we're looking at the number of Americans that are still, I don't know how to get tested for the corona. I don't know if you two do or have seen uh, where these drive-through tests are. I'm still kind of, I don't know. I don't know if I wake up tomorrow with a fever. I don't know, do I just call my doctor? I don't know the procedures. And so that just could be my own ignorance. But I do know that there are a lack of tests available for those who are seeking them. And so that's not to say that there's something wrong or that the, our, our medical community is doing wrong. I just think they were incorrectly set up and, and not prepared or put in the position to succeed. And so now we're seeing um, these medical communities being overloaded. And so the most we can do to help them um, really kind of subside and really control the 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 outbreak is kind of limiting our exposure, so I'm not having to go get tested myself. All right, so I'm going to tell you why we don't have enough tests right now. Uh, one of the things that they do at the CDC, they basically have an option of creating their own test, and their test, basically, they have a couple of procedures. Now, most of the world went with a pretty standard procedure. I'm not going to go into the technical details, because I did a little research on this on my own. Uh, they went through and said, okay, we're going to go with this standard method of creating a test for this virus. CDC said, you know what? We're America. We're going to do something a little different. Classic. And most of the time, though, they're right. It just so happens in this specific instance, they guessed wrong. And the first batch of tests that they sent out, so they missed a couple of weeks of production due to the fact that they picked, they chose poorly, uh, to quote Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. Chose poorly. <laughs> yes. Uh, they chose poorly. They got it wrong. It was not necessarily anything the data would suggest would have been the wrong case. The only thing that you can point to in this situation is simply, why did you pick the thing that seemed to be working for everybody else? Or at the time, we did not have a lot of data on this particular item. But, you know, we did choose a different route. It didn't work out. We lost a couple of weeks of production. Therefore, we are behind in testing dramatically, and we still struggle to keep up to this day. Yeah, and I think the other thing for that is that um, everyday Americans are struggling to find these tests. But yep. so this exposes certain aspects of, of our society, right? So I've seen um, yeah. NBA teams have been fully tested and vetted. <laughs> I'm sure they have a little bit more resources than um, uh, our, our truck drivers or our warehouse workers or maybe those in construction. And so it's really kind of exposing some of these loopholes and gaps of like, oh, got a little extra, you got some more resources, maybe you can kind of get and find out where you need to be, go to get tested and, 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 and make sure you're in the clear or not. Yeah. So, okay. So I'm going to pull away from the medical testing for a minute because we are a freight centered show. And I, I, I kind of want to ask the question. All right. So Andrew, you did the, the 20% unemployment uh, level. So 
let's go down the path of we have, you know, we are where we are, regardless of testing and where we went wrong and where we went right. This is not a foreseen circumstance. This is a black swan event, by definition, something you do not build into your model with any su sufficiency. Sure. So moving forward, we, you know, obviously can't just mass produce these tests overnight and have everybody ready to go. What are some of the alternatives that we can do to mitigate this economic, this potential economic meltdown? I mean, you're, we're looking at, you said it yourself, you know, we've got Goldman Sachs coming out with a negative 24% GDP growth. I don't think that that's feasible in terms of avoiding, you know, total global economic meltdown. Um, something will have to happen. What are some of the alternatives that we can do to help, you know, if we are gonna practice social distancing and st you know stay at home policies what can we do what do we need what do we need out of the government what do we need out of any other source that we can get that will help us sustain without us turning into some sort of post apocalyptic uh, disaster sure i think i've got three basic steps that what I, at least a stimulus package that i'm looking at that i think should that must include uh, one first and foremost it has to put money in consumers pockets so we're looking at w whatever number amount you want to put it on whether it's 1000 or 1500 or 2000 i've seen a wide ranging numbers we have to put money in consumers pockets today as fast as we can and we're looking at you know i had seen that uh, in previous years when they had done a stimulus package back in 2009 they had took them 6 to 8 weeks to print those checks and get them delivered we're, we're far too uh, technologically advanced for that. They need to be depositing straight into uh, they need depositing straight into our bank accounts, which I, to me it just doesn't <laughs> seem like that could be that difficult of a task for the U.S. government, the most powerful and richest government in the world, to be able to work with local banks to get money into direct deposit. I think that should happen immediately, as fast as possible. Number two is look at the, the bills for the consumer. So these consumers are going to be at home for the foreseeable future, whether it be two weeks. 10 weeks or whatever have you, you have to look at as a government, what bills, what companies can we work with, you, whether it be utilities companies or banks that own the mortgages or, bank, or, or landlords that own the buildings, how can we work with them to you know, either cut some of the costs of the, the bills that are the fixed cost of fixed bills that us as consumers have to pay. Uh, I think that that's the second step is try to look. These people are going to be at home. They're going to be out of work. Uh, they, they will give them a little bit of money in their pocket from a stimulus and will help them pay their bills. And then the third thing is trying to secure their paycheck. And securing their paycheck, I think, has to come with really tight agreements from the government to the companies itself. I'm more focused on the employees. We focus on the employees when it comes to uh, putting money in their pockets and then helping them with their bills. But the third level, we have to help these companies as well. But I think you can only help the companies if you agree with them, if you put an agreement in that they're not going to lay off workers. So the, and I just think that the, the cost-benefit analysis, in my mind, I haven't, done, I haven't run a model on this, but I think the cost-benefit of the, re, the payments right now to small businesses that, w that are going to lay off workers, to keep them from laying off workers, the cost and repayment of that will be far less than the government federal safety net that's going to need to be thrown uh, once these people are already fired. The, the unemployment checks, the, the, the Medicare, the everything else that has to, the Medicaid that has to, that has to keep them alive and keep them in the U.S. economy, I think that the, the, the cost is going to be far less to just give the small businesses and the corporations the money. But you have to ensure that they're not going to lay off workers. I think that's the most important point. So if you're going to, if you're going to give the, basically the individuals money, but you're also going to give the bus businesses money as well? 
I am. And the reason is we're giving consumers money right now as an injection into the economy. Uh, in my point, this is like a, a staged thing. Uh, and it, we may have to do further injections later on if, this, if, this, if we're not able to flatten the curve and able to, to cut, uh, you know, mitigate the spread. But right now, we need to get money into people's pockets, not only f- because they need it and because, as you said earlier, I don't know the exact number, but I'd say it's at least half of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. They need money right now to be able to buy goods, not run up their credit card bill, not get themselves into a deeper hole. They need money in their pockets now to feel secure. And on top of that, we need to make sure that they can try to keep their job at any cost we can. We need to make sure that this unemployment rate doesn't spike to 20%. I, I, I thought in even with significant fiscal stimulus in my model, I had up to 10, 10% unemployment. And 10% unemployment was the peak of, uh, of the Great Recession, where which is like the, the, the wildest imaginations of a recession that we could you know, conjure up in modern history. So that, that's my three steps. Put money in the pockets of consumers, help them with their bills in any way we can, and then give companies monies only on the guarantee that they won't lay off people. All right, Anthony. So... Andrew's solution is print money. Yeah. Sounds, how does, how does sounds that work? Sounds nice. How does that work? That's how the Federal Reserve works. Yep. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, think, I think it's a good plan, especially Andrew really emphasized getting the money into the hands of consumers. And I think that is spot on, is that the consumer drives the economy. I don't like that. The, the, the consumer drives the economy, and they need the money. They need to pay their bills. I mean, it's going to be a little bit more of an intricate process to kind of see where their bill payments are and kind of taking over those. But I think if we are indeed supporting small businesses first and foremost, that's going to alleviate a lot of unemployment uh, aspects that are going to have to come down the line. And you start looking at Medicare and all these other things that are also going to follow. And so it's going to be a less, uh, a much lower price point uh, than down the road. And so uh, I think definitely being able to support those small businesses and service facing uh, sectors where those employees were the first to kind of be laid off and hit the hardest. um, That's cool. Great. I think the other big thing that needs to happen right now is, Zach, you, you probably already know this. I am not a fan of regulations. Um, I don't like regulations that are just kind of impeding would-be interactions or uh, progress that could be made within an economy or in a business. Anything. I don't like regulations. I'm a rebel. You know, I, I like to just, if I see a, a problem, address it, fix it. Not everything's that cut and dry, but there are many regulations right now that could be impeding um, progress that is happening or could happen within the medical field, and that could be uh, more resources entering the medical field. Such as what? Give specifics. So, uh, for example, um, maybe recently retired medical workers. I think we went over this last week. Maybe some of those recently retired medical workers can come back to the workforce. So basically add, get their licenses back and engage right away. Right. Yeah. Uh, maybe those that are moving, that just may, may have moved from a state to another state, maybe they're waiting for some type of licensing to come through because they just moved to a, a new state. And so maybe that could be streamlined or pushed forward. So clear out the bureaucracy a little yes, bit. Yes. Clear the way. All of that. Emergency powers... You know, basically saying, all right, we don't have to go through these five-step processes yes. uh, where we can take one. Yeah. And, and also, um, on the other end of the spectrum, students that are now coming into the workforce that might be able to enter the medical field really utilize those um, individuals. I mean... Um, oh, this is like, I, I, I kind of like this because this is kind of like the army draft. It's like, you know what? You don't have any experience in, in here, but you're an able-bodied and yeah. you're willing. Yeah. We're going to give you a couple of quick 
uh, progression steps here yeah. to kind of jump in. Get in the game. Yeah. Getting called up to varsity. We because somebody's better than nobody at this point, correct? Yeah, and, and I think there's a, a probably a, a vast amount of talent, um, especially when we're looking at the younger demographics. I, Andrew Cox is a great example. Um, was a former intern here at Freight Waves. Um, one Risen of the, through the ranks. <laughs> one of the brightest minds within the company. All right, and all right. he, he puts out good work. I'm going to stop you here for a second. Yeah. All right. So, yes, I, in theory, that sounds wonderful and beautiful and rosy, and I, I love it. Yeah. Except for the fact that we as a country love, love our lawyers mm. so much. So what happens when young Andrew here says, I got coronavirus and, you know, Sally Jane over there that really hasn't only a year of nursing school basically intubated me wrong and now I'm damaged for life. I made it, but now I'm damaged for life. What do you do about all that? Medical malpractice. Medical malpractice. I mean, so that's the other thing. Quality has to stay up. And so that's that ramp up effect that you just mentioned. It's like we get them ramped up, Mm -hmm. trained correctly, because just because we increase increase the the quantity doesn't mean that the the quality has to go down. So that's the, the big takeaway here is we're not taking sophomores and juniors right now. We're taking those that are at the very end of their studies. Okay. And so you're going to limit. Yes. You're going to limit. You're still going to limit. I'm not looking at a freshman okay. right now. I'm not saying. I guess we'd have, to, we'd have to implement them in roles that are, you know, that, that allow the, the, the very well-trained and experienced uh, healthcare workers to actually do more of the hands-on work. You know, mm-hmm. I'm yeah. sure that there are experienced healthcare workers that are having to fill IV bags. I don't know that much about medical terminology, but they're having to do jobs that don't involve them actually coming hand-to-hand in, okay. in contact with a, with a patient. Maybe we can allow them to do that while we allow. I like that idea. I hadn't, right. I hadn't gotten there yet. Other, other thing I don't like, Zach, economic inefficiencies. You know what's an economic inefficiency? What is that? Tariffs. And so we need to reduce um, any type of tariff-related uh, uh, actions that are impacting medical equipment. And so if we are by any way holding or withholding medical equipment that could be saving lives, um, because there's some type of a, a tariff in, for, in place or anything like that, that needs to be addressed because we need goods in these hospitals. We need to feed um, the, the medical uh, sector as much as possible because they are going to be, between that and food, going to be the essential uh, areas of our economy. But Anthony, they're, they're, not already, they're, they're still trying to get ramped back up. They can't even get over here right now. <laughs> but I like your I like I like what you said. I think that's I think that's accurate. I think anything that you can do to expedite the process, whether that's a one to five percent increase or just any type of way that you can kind of break down some barriers, you know, this is not a normal time. Right. There's a reason that there are emergency powers granted uh, to the presidency and legislature and stuff like that to break through some of these bureaucracies that can get things going. So that all being said, well and good. So let's just Go back a little bit here. So the freight market itself is doing great right now, but we're still seeing a lot of reports of layoffs. Unemployment right now appears to be on the rise. I think we've all seen the reports that maybe as much as 2 million uh, un- you know, jobless, jobless claims, claims yeah. going up next week. I'm going to go to Anthony yep. and say, is this a realistic figure? 20%. Going to oh, no, 2, million, 2, million. 2 million jobless claims next week. Um, hey, we were at 270, is that accurate? Uh, 281,000. 281,000. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that's is this re- up there. Is this a realistic claim? So, I mean, it's realistic if you're looking at the demographic and the, the scope of people that will be and can be impacted. Um, there is a, a potential that 
this number isn't hit just because maybe systems are so slow and so behind and really kind of tallying up because the weekly jobless claims they're estimates and so these estimates could be off because as all these regional uh, data sets are gathered maybe they're not accounting for all of the actual true jobless claims and so that ah. could be a way that we don't see that number um, because, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, th that, that could be a way that we see, okay, maybe it wasn't as, as bad as it was, but it's really much worse um, just because they are subject to revisions and things like that. Um, but I do think when we're looking at um, one of the great deep dives Andrew just put out, when you look at the amount of people that are going to be affected, that's, that really kind of puts things into perspective of it actually being a potential real number. Andrew. I agree on the front of the technical difficulties. I, I mentioned this, I think, when we did a, a shipper update last week on FreightWaves Now. We talked about how it, it's reminiscent of that uh, original rollout of Affordable Care Act where we had healthcare.gov that just kind of shut down because so much demand kind of flooded it, the servers, yada, yada. Uh, we had major technical if, if difficulties there. I think that's one issue that may not give us the real nominal number of how many people have been laid off. Uh, a second issue that I see is that I think people will... Uh, use their expectation of a stimulus. They'll expect, they'll be like, they'll, they'll be looking at the news and say, oh, uh, you know, Senate, uh, Pelosi said that we're going to get 1500 bucks in, in a couple weeks. I have no need to apply for unemployment yet. A lot of people have this stigma of unemployment that it's, uh, that it's something be beneath them. So I don't think that they'll, they will apply for that on a, on a last note that they, that will be the last thing they do. They'll expect the expectations for the stimulus will actually kind of uh, curtail the demand for unemployment um, for, for the jobless claims. So I don't know if we hit that 2.5 million or even 2 million, but I think that the nominal, the real value of that by next week will be at least two and a half million of people that have been laid off in the past week and a half or two. Wow. All right. So to follow up to that question, is this uh, you know, we've only, we've only been in this scenario where we are, you know, basically shut down as a country for, you know, in Chattanooga, uh, like a week and a half. And for the rest of the country, maybe as much as two to three weeks tops. Uh, we really didn't see any nominal increases in freight volumes, tender rejections, anything that we monitor here uh, until about March 2nd, March 3rd. And that was kind of a slow progress. Like, I mean, it wasn't slow, but it was not necessarily super fast. So the panic appeared to show up all at once. We've talked about this on previous Freightonomics. But knowing that, I know for a fact, as a data analyst over the majority of my career, when things happen really fast over a short period of time, I don't apply those with any length of time moving forward. So is this layoff scenario, I mean, obviously, hopefully a lot of these people, these businesses, so you're talking to the business owners in this question, uh, is this the right move considering the fact that as fast as this may appear, it may also quickly disappear? Andrew, go ahead. Is the right move that is the expectation for unemployment? Is that what, or no? That is, is are they doing the right thing by laying off their people with this expediency? I see. I'll, I'll use freight as an example uh, in particular because you know we've seen our freight volumes be flying through the roof. We've seen rates go crazy over the last couple of weeks. So you know anyone looking from the outside with any without any understanding of this market would say that, wow, trucking's the only ones doing good right now, one of the only ones that they should be hiring people rather than firing. I could see that uh, understanding of the market happening, but that's not what's happening. We've seen a dozen companies lay off people over the past week, and I actually think that those layoffs are not solely and completely due to COVID-19. I think that there's there's underlying fundamental issues in the freight industry from overcapacity, uh, bringing down rates, uh, to a general, uh, to the 
um, especially on the flatbed side, if you want to look at the, the industrial manufacturing recession, uh, I think we had a slowing down of global GDP. We already had all these underlying issues that were popping up that were dragging on on, uh, on trucking companies and brokerages that were, the people already had this idea in the back of their mind that if, if things weren't good by the summertime, they would have to lay off X amount of people. I just think those expectations have been brought up because of the disturbance and the thought that that their business is going to be different in the next couple of months. So um, I, I, I do think that there's underlying issues here that the trucking company is working through. I, I don't think it's a good idea for them to be to them to be firing as many people as they, as they are. But again, I'm not running their business. So if they feel like that's the best thing to do for their business, if they need to bring down costs, oh, no, to you're try not to, their friend. We're not, we're not, we're not trying to be too nice here. <laughs> in my mind, no, I would try to say cut every cost you can besides before you look to labor. That, yeah. that would be in my mind be cut every single cost you can before you go to labor. Uh, you know, but people are going to make different decisions. That's that's the, the idea of capitalism. That people are going to run companies however they want. No, there's obviously a, a, the obvious issue of cash flow. Transportation companies are notoriously short on cash flow. Uh, they don't necessarily have the payroll set up, and I, I think that's actually the case in multiple industries, uh, as we're seeing in the retail side. I mean, they they can't keep people that, if they're not generating revenue. I know personally from my experience, we missed a day or two of billing. It was a, it ruined our year. Yeah. Two days, two days of billing, and it ruined our year. So that's how tight things can get. And, and and again, back to our point earlier in the show, the reason I kicked it off the way I did was to basically show visibility into the fact that, you know, it sounds good and well that we can just hit pause on everybody showing up and going to restaurants and businesses and, you know, hit pause on your life. That That sounds great in theory, but the reality is, is that that's not how we are set up. We have built this infrastructure over decades, if not hundreds of years of hard work, labor, et cetera, to get to the point where we are and to simply shut it all down at once uh, is, not, is not a feasible answer. So I think that's... Can I make one last note yeah, before you said the, the, the thing that made the American economy and the American consumer the, the best and most powerful in the world, which was often overspending when we didn't need to working so hard that we had all this money we spent all of it that might be the the poison pill that actually brings this economy back down to earth in in this environment here no i I think i think you make some good points there especially since i think most people were thinking that we were in i mean we were in the longest stretch of a growth cycle that i think has been in history anthony correct me yeah it's the longest but uh also not widely known one of the slowest as well ah yeah but it was a steady growth yeah if you look at the gdp growth yeah, it's it. It's one of my favorite stats. If you're as a data analyst, is if you look at anything that grows nice, slow, and steady, it's more sustainable than that thing that we're seeing right now, which I think is intuitive to most of the people. You know, you see these volumes spike, you know that this is not sustainable. We're we're basically flooding. Uh, my favorite study is a traffic study. If you look at this stuff, you see this massive growth all at once, and it clogs the system, and it's actually very unhealthy to do. And all of a sudden, it breaks itself, and then it goes back down. So these traffic studies, you have a lot of cars going in a circle. Yeah. They're all going the same speed. Eventually, all one of them has to do is tap their brakes. And unless you remove cars from the, uh, from the cycle, it continues to have traffic moving around the circle. Yeah, yeah. And I so, mean, so right now, I'm... Zach, I'm thinking of a way to play devil's advocate again uh, to Andrew's point. Young Andrew. And so, all right, let's do this, all right? Do but, it. All right, so, yeah, these companies were absolutely correct in laying off people. Um, also, it was probably a convenient inconvenience. Mm-hmm. They were likely already... Um, a little fat. Yeah, in an awful position. 
Um, and so now the coronavirus is here. They can use this as a very convenient, inconvenient excuse for shutting down operations altogether when they were running inefficiently this entire time. Um, I don't think this applies specifically just for transportation and freight, but for many businesses that were probably operating throughout the country that were just operating very poorly. Now the coronavirus gets here and now all of a sudden they have to you know, shut their doors. So very inconvenient, convenient timing for them. Other side is, I, it's a hard one because I can only imagine as a business owner being able to maybe have to lay off X amount in order to save a certain amount. So that's another uh, uh, aspect of it all because maybe some businesses are still looking to retain operations and not shut their doors altogether. And if they were to continue to uh, operate business as usual, the entire operation would have been lost. And so I think um, when you're looking at uh, overhead reduction, that has to be the, the hard pill to swallow for many business owners and small businesses around the country. So, so effectively what you're both saying, what you're both telling me is that, you know, take these two million job losses with a grain of salt because effectively they were running so fat in the first place. They, they you know, it's just a nice convenient Some excuse. Of them. Some of them. Yeah, I don't know if I'd go so far. Some of I them. Just, the just... other, there's a big chunk <laughs> of them that are, are, are uh, service facing individuals that are uh, maybe in restaurant industries, uh, travel, um, hospitality, things like that as well. All right. So you're saying just flood the market with unemployment. It'll be fine because it no, in, in no way impacts me, the business owner, uh, if I just all of a sudden I do what everybody else is doing and lay off the entire, you know, t you know, we go up to 10% unemployment, for instance. That won't impact me as a business owner if I just go ahead and use this as a convenient excuse, laying oh. off people and it's going to be fine for me in the long run, correct? I don't think, no. There's sarcasm there, by the, the way. There's, a, there's <laughs> the other aspect that um, I think there's going to be some probably, there always are, there, there's probably going to be some bad actors, right, that are going to like say, um, say I'm a small business owner, I need some type of government assistance because if not, I need to shut my doors when that's not really the case. Um, so I think there are going to be a few, not the majority, of business owners that are going to kind of try to um, leverage this potential stimulus package in order to kind of um, add to potential margins or just kind of uh, really subside operations and, and kind of take a little bit of a vacation or, uh, and, and instead of actually, you know, really being in dire needs. But I do think that there are going to be, uh, there, there are just some inefficient businesses and inefficient businesses can go on for months, quarters, years. But when it hits the fan, those inefficiencies are going to come straight to the forefront and get exposed. Uh, so you're a broker. You just lost your job. You're a truck driver. You're a you know, back office worker for a trucking company. So now the market is flooded with people of your specific skill set. And that work is no longer there. What exactly are you supposed to do, given the fact that nobody saw this coming? That I think everybody can agree that nobody saw this level of impact to the overall economy uh, taking place like it did to the scale that it did, et cetera. What are you supposed to do? I mean, you say, say now you can start saving money because now it's very apparent that you need to. Mm -hmm. What are you supposed to do now? You got, you're competing with a load of other people. What are you, you going to do? I'd try to go get a job at a, at, a, at a brokerage that focuses on reefer, first of all, <laughs> as a joke. Uh, yeah. Anthony, you, you want to you start off on that, what you should do if you've <laughs> yeah. been laid off and there's a ton of people looking for your job, and I'll, I'll yeah. come back when I have some thoughts. Sure. Mm -hmm. and I mean, I mean, that's a tough one, and that's a hard situation, and that's a harsh reality for many people out that's there. That's real. It's mm -hmm. real. Yeah. Um, and so my initial thoughts are 
So my background, Zach, I've always, I've been an economist my entire professional career, whether it's in corporate advisory or different segments, different components. But also, I've moved furniture before. Um, I've done that because it was just a free workout and something to do <laughs> in my free time, you know? So it's just like, all right, cool. I can move furniture. Um, I didn't have to go to school for that. Right. And so there are certain opportunities right now might be out of your wheelhouse. It's not what your professional development is. Y maybe you think it's beneath you, but it's going to pay. And so there are opportunities out there. They're going to be limited. Um, the hours are going to be limited. There's going to be a ton of people going for those opportunities as well. But have backup plans. And so if you are uh, competing for roles that is a flooded area, uh, a back office brokerage individuals potentially, maybe you can find uh, opportunities within somewhere um, Walmart is now one of the largest hiring right now. Mm -hmm. um, I know stocking shelves might not seem that appealing right now, but it's a huge demand right now. Um, there are warehouses that are really looking to ramp up activity. And so looking at what is... A lot of those warehouses just emptied out. <laughs> a lot of them just emptied out, exactly. Yeah. And so looking at where there are opportunities, even if it's outside of your wheelhouse, your professional uh, background is going to be key. Um, and it doesn't have to be a permanent solution. It's a, I need to put food on the table, I need to pay rent, my mortgage, um, these bills solution, and not be waiting in the dark hoping that a stimulus package comes through. All right. You spurred a lot of thoughts. I'm glad we there started you with you on that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think there's so many, especially now with all these online availabilities whether for, for learning skills, as basic as Excel, as, as advanced as learning to code. Uh, there are so many skills online that you can learn while you're at your home quarantined that you can try to, to build your skill base so that when that job market finally opens back up, whether it be two months or a year from now, that you, you have better skills than you did when you entered it whenever you got your last job. I mean, and whether and you go on to uh, even look at schooling, like actual schooling, when online classes are, are back in full force or when, you know, the universities are back in session next fall, is that uh, you, you look at law school and med school, they have their highest admission rates when we enter a recession. I mean, the, the I think we have more law school graduates in 2012 than we have in the last two decades because, or not uh, on a single year, because everybody jumped back in school uh, when, when 2008, 2009 hit. I know I talked to Kevin. He went back and got his MBA uh, back during the 2008 recession. So look for other ways to, to enrich yourself in, in work, uh, whether it be paying or non-paying. I think that's probably the best method to keep your mind working uh, during this. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and disagree with both of you. Let's go. Uh, I'm going to have to take the opposite side here. I think that the government has to step in, and not just our government, but the world government. Uh, we all have to basically agree that this has been the single most uh, global impacting event in our time, especially as we've been living. Of course, we weren't around during World War II, which was a big thing, but wars typically do have a boosting impact to economies. So it's not necessarily the same thing unless you're on the losing end of that. Uh, but at the same time, I think this is such a, gr a grievous situation uh, that the government has to have some sort of big impact here, that has to have a big role. We cannot, we cannot have a 20% unemployment rate over the course of going from 3.5% to 20% in the matter of weeks. That's too fast. That's too hard to fall. Uh, the economy itself can't sustain. I can't go and get a job at Walmart because there ain't going to be nobody there to buy anything at Walmart. Uh, I can't go and load a warehouse that's empty because nothing's coming into that warehouse. This is a total out of our control. Our infrastructure is set up for what it was. 
we have grown, we've expanded our bandwidth, uh, we did all the things that we needed to do to make it one of the most prosperous economies in the United States uh, that, that we've seen ever, and maybe in history. And yet, we, we can't just fall that far that fast without some sort of assistance. I hate printing money. <laughs> I hate all of that. I hate government regulations. But in this situation, I do think that there needs to be some form, uh, regardless of partisanship, if, if they put $3.2 trillion in the economy, my hope, regardless of whether or not that's bookmarked for something or not, is that some of that money trickles down into the overall economy and hits our pockets, hits everyone's pockets. These companies can stop laying people off. That would be my first target, uh, is just stop the bleeding. We're all trying to hit pause as hard as we can, but these companies have a reality to deal with in the way that they have cash flow. Just cut all of this off. And I think that that has to come from some higher power. <laughs> I don't think that we can just mitigate it uh, by stopping our spending, et cetera. So that's my final thought. If you guys... Yeah, I mean, I got, I got, one, I got one final thought. Mm -hmm. if, the, if the government or the administration happens to encourage us to go back to work in the next two weeks... Just don't. If you can, if you can stay home, stay at home. I think that was one of the only points that we all three of us agreed upon is that shelter in place is by far one of the best methods we have to keep people safe. It's not you I'm worried about. It's who you might infect. So please just stay home. I, I think we'll all be better off if that happens. Ain't nobody working if they're sick. <laughs> Anthony? Uh, my final thought is um, always have your best interest at heart when you're looking at being able to provide for yourself and your family. So setting yourself up for success. And so my final thoughts are even as you mentioned, should the government step in and help and support? Of course, but don't depend on that. And so always looking for your backup plans, being able to pivot and always having something up your sleeve and a backup plan of what might happen doesn't come through. And so being able to do that, I think will help mitigate potential losses for uh, many individuals and many businesses that are, are operating in this time. Yeah, and stay positive. It'll pass. Everything does, especially if you're persistent. Uh, that'll do it, I think, for my public service announcement for the day, Anthony. <laughs> good. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks, everyone, for joining in this week. Thank you to Andrew Cox. Thank you for Again, having me. You can fun. check out On Great Quarter, guys, on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. And as usual, Anthony is always wrong. So no. thanks for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> you can't end on that. With my macro. Oh, wait. No, 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 no. We're not no, ending no. on macro. We're going back. Macro. Yeah, no. <laughs> Mine. I win. <laughs> he was so great. <laughs> no, you're wrong. Overrated. <laughs> 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 <laughs>